Welcome to episode 96 with my guest, Lilith. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that's filled with conversations you've always wanted to have but didn't know how to start. Huh? What do you think? You like it? I think we might I think we might have found a a new uh waiting room metaphor. Uh the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh that's also the Twitter name that you can follow me at, mentalpod. Please follow me on Twitter, especially monthly uh donors because then I can let you know when I'm raffling off a cutting board or something like that or I can let you know when there's a good article on the newspaper about stuff like that. Um couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, I got a great email from a counselor in Texas who told me that if you have, if you're struggling to find affordable uh, mental health care, if you have ever been the victim of sexual abuse, you may qualify for free counseling at a rape, rape crisis center. And uh, for more information, go to the Rape and Incest National Network uh, website. That's R-A-I-N-N dot org. Um, so that is very helpful to know. I want to encourage you guys to also go to the um, to the forum if you haven't gone there. Uh, a lot of people really connecting deeply with, uh, with each other and finding comfort in knowing that they're not alone with their with their story. So uh, I encourage you guys to uh, to check that out. Um, Happy New Year! Huh? 2013. Did you lose weight 2013? Something looks different about you. I am going to kick things off with, um, hold on. This is an email from uh, listener Anders. I'm from Sweden, and I'm sad to say that even in our socialist utopia, Lately, politics and stuff has made the mental care insufficient and overburdened, and people wonder why there are crazy people in the street. Fortunately, I had people around me uh, when I've gone through tough times struggling with mental illness when the mental care hasn't provided anything but obstacles. If I weren't lucky with caring people around me, I'd probably be dead or just homeless. And, you know, I don't read stuff like this to, to bum people out. I read it because... My goal with this show is to paint an accurate portrayal of where mental illness is in this day and age. And I'll get comments sometimes from people that'll say, yeah, I've had to stop listening to your show for a while because it was just too much of a downer or it was just too... I understand that. I understand that. But I'll understand the reason that I do that is I'm not trying to bring people down I do it because the people that are in that dark place, when they get to hear a story of similar darkness that is light to them, at least it is to me. You know, uh, last week I was experiencing a, a, a day of really kind of flat and just not feeling great. And I saw that there was a documentary uh, on about the band Joy Division, and I got excited. That is it in a nutshell. Who the fuck gets excited about 
Uh, you could be interested that there's a documentary about the band Joy Division, but to get excited about it because I knew it would be comforting to me. Um, and for you, those of you that don't know, uh, Joy Division was a seminal uh, band in Manchester, England in the late 70s that um, the lead singer took his life. And um, not not the most upbeat of uh, of stories, but that's why this show is sometimes that way. I'm not trying to manipulate people into feeling badly. I just know what it's like to have that comfort come in the form of dark honesty. I'm going to kick things off with a survey that was filled out. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Lynn Jam. She's 19. She's bisexual. was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she writes, yes, and I never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm a recovering heroin addict, and whenever I begin to get romantic sexual feelings for someone or do get romantically sexually involved with someone, I sometimes masturbate to a fantasy of injecting said person with heroin and having them really enjoy it. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. I was brutally, anally raped by my boyfriend when I was 16 with his penis and other objects. I haven't been fully honest with anyone about this. Um, I would encourage you very strongly to talk to a therapist about that. That is way too big of a thing to try to process on your own. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having a male lover be really turned on and wanting to have sex with me when I don't feel the same. He continues to try to turn me on and touch me and make advances while I keep telling him no. Eventually, he pins me down by my throat, lightly choking me while touching and fingering me. I'm still struggling slightly, but I'm not able to speak. Then he penetrates me, and I eventually start to enjoy it. Um, I say this every time I read somebody's fantasy that is like that. For those of you that are new-time listeners, those that are old-time listeners, you know what I'm going to say. But those of you that are new, do not, do not misinterpret that as women want to be raped. The fantasy in something like that, especially somebody who's experienced sexual trauma, is they want to go back and re-experience it, but have control. Because the pain of having been sexually violated is the lack of control, the being helpless. When someone fantasizes about that, they are choosing to give their control away. So in other words, they're taking control back because they choose to fantasize about that. It is the last thing that they want to happen in real in real life. Um, so I'm sorry if I if I'm repeating that um, to those of you that are that are longtime listeners, but um, uh, I would feel irresponsible to to read something like that and and not say that. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, I would consider telling my current partner, but not close friends. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular, particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, it generates feelings of weakness and a sense of having minimal control. Also feelings of confidence to some extent due to my partner wanting me so badly that they don't respect my wishes. One of the common things... I see, especially in the shame and secret survey, 
we've had almost 3,000 people take that survey so far. And very often, people who've been the victim of sexual abuse or trauma have two main fantasies. And one is some type of fantasy where they choose to give their control away. And the other fantasy they have separate but equally as powerful is to be loved and cherished and deeply desired and cuddled and protected. This next survey I want to read is from a guy who calls himself Quats. He is straight, uh, but adds, I've been the victim of male sexual abuse multiple times, and this has left me questioning my sexuality. He's 18, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. A neighborhood kid was definitely abusive to me and went through the whole scale of sexual abuse, but he would tell me every time that I wanted it that I was asking for it. To this day, I don't remember what exactly happened. Well, that... I don't know why he would check some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. That sounds to me like all of the hallmarks of serious sexual abuse. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. Life is just a waiting game until I can get the courage to end it. Deepest, darkest secrets. The abuse previously mentioned. The fact that I went to rehab at 15 but still haven't improved my condition. I'm going to school to become a therapist but haven't been able to conquer my own demons. I attend a 12-step program. I think I might be bisexual. I live in a Christian environment and this fact would have me immediately disowned. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. A good-looking man who not only satisfies me sexually, but acts as a protector towards me and takes away my fears and insecurities. Would you ever consider telling a partner or a close friend? He writes, I live in a town with more Christian churches per person than anywhere else in the world. So telling anyone about me fantasizing about guys would be a no-go. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, absolute shame and self-hate. I've carved the word fag into my flesh. I've prayed rosaries for days and cried myself to sleep constantly. To those of you that think that gay marriage is going to harm society, I would ask you, what do you call that? That your attitude creates. How could gay marriage ever inflict anything like that? Any comments or suggestions to make the podcast better? Not to sound elitist about one of the most pathetic things possible, but I feel like once in a while the guests aren't mentally ill enough. As a psych major, I truly believe we all have a bit of illness in us, but it's hard to relate to guests that come across as not having gone through much or having dealt with mental illness. I get that. I understand that. But sometimes I feel like I gotta I gotta mix it up a little bit. Um, I don't have any profound quotes to read, so I am going to I'm actually just gonna open one of my favorite books from Pema Chodron called "When Things Fall Apart" and see if she's got a good one. The point is not to try to get rid of thoughts but rather to see their true nature. Thoughts will run us around in circles if we buy into them, but really they are like dream images. They are like an illusion. 
not really all that solid. They are, as we say, just thinking. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Lilith. That's that's the name that uh, that she goes by. Uh, she is a listener who contacted me. She lives locally here in Los Angeles, and um, I'm not really sure where to begin with your story. I suppose the 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 big identifying parts are that you moonlight as an as an escort. Yeah. Um, you have borderline personality? No, I start? don't. Oh, you no. were just interested in that. Right. right. Okay. Uh, okay. No, I'm manic depressive. Oh, manic depressive. Yes. Okay. Um, this interview's over then. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Very short. Shortest podcast ever. Um, where would be the best place to start? You had, you had emailed me, and so we, we uh, met, grabbed a cup of coffee. Right. I uh, just wanted to make sure you weren't a, a a nut job, and you certainly were not. And we had a nice conversation. And at a certain point, I was like, "All right, stop. Let's let's save it for the the interview because I like hearing things for the for the first time." Um, why the name Lilith? Uh, the name Lilith is. I thought it was a really good pseudonym. I mean, most of the pseudonyms that escorts go by are things like, you know, Bambi, Heidi, you know, it, <laughs> T- Vita Dantes. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, you've got to hide the name Crystal. <clears throat> well, now you found me out. That is my secret. Um, <laughs> Crystal with a Y and a little heart <laughs> instead of the A. Uh, I liked it because I like what the original deity of Lilith represents. You know, um, she was Adam's first wife. She was into sex. She was not into being, she wasn't so much into the whole obey gig. And uh, Adam got fed up with her. Lilith got fed up with him. And so she got expelled from Eden. And her mythology got overlaid a lot with um, very many misogynistic things that happened when um, Judaism became really, well, extremely misogynistic, and she became kind of a scapegoat for everything that was negative about female sexuality. You know, she represented power. She represented assertiveness. She represented um, self uh, – what would be the word? Self-determination, which was not a popular thing in a Bronze Age goat herding – Middle in the Bronze Age goat herding Middle East. So, <laughs> but I liked it. And um, I also liked that it actually became a really good way to winnow out my clients. The ones that got the name and understood it and thought it was a kick, those are the people that I generally had a really good time with and we got along. So then it's fair to say there's an intellectual component to um, 
your relationship between you and some of your uh, clients, oh, that very, it's not just physical? Uh, very much so. I would say it's almost completely intellectual and or emotional. Uh, the physical is a very, very small percentage of the interactions that we have and the time we spend together. Can you expound on that more? Because I know there are people listening that are that probably went, what? Mm-hmm. It's all about the sex. <laughs> you're, well, you're fucking kidding yourself so that you can feel better about, you know, what it is that you do. And I agree with you, by uh-huh. the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most most men that come to see me, because I don't look like your standard porn star, which is, you know, a misnomer about a lot of escorts, you know, we're all supposed to look like porn stars and strippers, and most of us don't. Um, people come to see me because they're looking for a connection, and they're looking for a guilt-free connection. And that's something that they feel like they have to pay for, which is kind of sad. You know, it's Mm -hmm. really sad that they can't get this in a regular relationship. And, you know, like, let's say I spend an hour with somebody, 40 minutes of that hour will be talking to them. Only about 10, 20 minutes is actually sex. And is the talking usually before or after? Before. Before. And is that part of the turn on for them? I guess so. I guess so. They they just want to be heard and they want to be listened to. It's really more therapy with some sex at the end than it is sex. I've heard I've heard other people say that before too. Mm-hmm. And you know they say that everything is about sex except, except for sex. sex. Yes, I know that's really really true. Um, really true. Let's talk about your 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 childhood. What kind of environment were you were you raised in? Oh, really dysfunctional. Yeah, <laughs> really dysfunctional. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's see my, uh, well, first my dad and my mom met (laughs) (laughs) that I was an egg. No, um, my parents are both in academia and, um, very, very bright people. I was very close to my father growing up, used to go with him to his classes. Um, he taught at West coast Ivy and so did my mother. They taught at different schools though, which was probably Mm -hmm. a, probably a good thing. Uh, he was in the sciences. She was in the arts and I was extremely, extremely close to him. Um, followed him around, went with him, sat with him on committee meetings. When he taught in his office hours, we were extremely close. And he was a narcissist, which I didn't, you know, you don't realize this when you're six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was his source of narcissistic supply. And I was happy to, I mean, it's my dad, right? So uh, he and my mother eventually split up. She could not take his cheating. He was a very good father, but a really lousy husband. And they split up when I was eight, um, and he took off. I didn't see him for a year. I didn't know where he'd gone. He just disappeared. Wow. I can't imagine how painful that must have been. That was really rough, um, watching him walk out the front door. And at the time, you know, I thought I'd see him again. Um, it was already a little rough, you know, as they were explaining they're going to get a divorce. And, and believe me, I, I got it even then that it was a good thing that they were getting divorced. Um, you know, they were throwing things, yelling, screaming, like obviously the two of them needed to live apart. But when my dad got back in touch about a year later, he'd uh, taken up with, he'd met another woman who had four kids of her own. She was pregnant with his child. So he had this whole substitute family. Oh, my God. That was hard. Oh, my God. That was just crushing. Really crushing. Yeah, I felt replaced. Oh, my God. And it was so traumatic for my uh, younger sister. Uh, she's about three years younger than me. She didn't grow for a whole year. Like, her growth just got stunted. And my little brother, who's eight years younger, 
Uh, luckily, you know, he was an infant when all this mm-hmm. was going on, so he doesn't really remember any of it. But it was it was pretty devastating. And having to adjust and, you know, all of a sudden you've got four new stepsisters that you're supposed to get along with and, and a stepmother. Oh, that and and I, well. I would imagine his attention was probably almost impossible to get with all that on his plate. It was. It was. Uh, it was very divided. And so that was a big change for me. Really big change for me. How often did you see him then? Uh, at that point, once he got back in contact, uh, I saw him every other weekend. And then during summers and, uh, you know, like a week during the Christmas break, Easter break, you know, the normal mm-hmm. joint custody arrangement that was so popular in the 70s and 80s. If somebody hasn't named a band every other weekend yet, <laughs> they should, because every divorce kid in yes. the pl- on the planet would get the name of it. I think every other weekend should be the album name and joint custody should be the band. <laughs> so how do you remember coping when that pain, I remember pain. losing myself in books. I'd always been, um, always been into reading. Always, always. I mean, I don't remember not reading. I taught myself how to read, and so I just lost myself in books. Um, threw myself into school. Puberty hit really closely after my parents split up. They split up when I was eight. When I was nine, all of a sudden, I'd reached my adult height. My voice oh my was this deep. I had press. Oh, yeah. It was gnarly. I looked like I was about 17 years old when I was nine. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I got lots of attention from men. And my parents uh, were constantly in a position of having to take these guys aside and say, she's nine, she's 10, you know, she's 14. It was overwhelming. I didn't really know how to deal with it. Was there all. a part of you that enjoyed it? Well, yeah. I mean, it was attention from men. Um, at the time, I had a teacher who was male, who was really a great and nurturing figure, you know, and I was able to displace a lot of the emotions toward, you know, that I all the things I wanted from my father onto this teacher. And that was good because he was he was very appropriate. You know, he was able to set the boundaries, but still be loving and nurturing in a good way. And I really think if it hadn't been for him, I would have become, I don't know, even more warped. <laughs> Oh, yeah. My God, if that guy had taken advantage of you. That would have been horrible. Do you think if he would have made a move on you, you would have fallen for it? Oh, completely. I was just so desperate for attention. Yeah. And and in a way, that's kind of what led into my being raped when I was nine. There was a guy in my mother's church who paid a lot of attention to me, and I was just so desperate for attention. Uh, I... And I didn't have a good sense, although I was a very intelligent child, I wasn't very wise. And mm-hmm. I didn't have a good sense of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And um, he and some of his friends raped me. And that was something. There was that, more than one person? Uh, yeah. Yeah. How, did, how does that happen? How? How? Uh, and, it, and at a fucking church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I no, mean. It was really funny. What? What the? F- <sighs> yeah. The hypocrisy of. Um, Organized religion is aren't, <laughs> and th- and you know, and that doesn't speak for all organized religion, but no, that's very true. Very true. How I I don't want to pain you by going into too many details about that, but right. what do what do people say to each other to get something like that? I have no going? idea. I have no idea what synapses fire for that one. That just. You know, I've been doing this show for almost two years now, and I've heard a lot of shit. Yeah, 
Yeah, I've listened to the some of the podcasts. You have definitely heard a lot of shit. But oh my god. Yeah. I don't even know where to where to where to go from there. What how do you how do you cope? How do you cope in that moment? Do you just leave your body? Oh yeah. Yeah, I just totally left my body. Um there was because I was still, you know, fairly tall, big and strong, uh I don't remember much of what happened. You know, it's just it's very, very fragmented, which I hear is is extremely common. Um, but there was a gun involved and that it, I've had a deathly fear of handguns ever, ever since. Um, they just make me freeze. And so I just kind of went someplace else in my head, just had to kind of hunker down and go, OK, I've got to live through this. I've got to I've got to just stay alive. Was was the room that it happened in small? Yes. Yes. Very small, very dark. That's so funny because, well, not funny is a terrible choice of words, but before we started recording. Oh, no, it is funny. Yeah, before we, were we started about re- recording. How glad I was there was a window in here. Yeah, we're in a little sound booth, and she said, um, if there wasn't a window in here, I don't know if I could have done this. Right. Yeah. How would that not make you claustrophobic? It, it does. Yeah. It does, for sure. Did you tell anyone? Oh, yeah. Um, I told had to tell my mother and I told the priest at the time and he was the priest had been an ex-cop who did not he did not um, take kindly to this news and the guys involved got the shit beat out of them and one of them had his car mysteriously stall on the train tracks mm. yeah so that was fun um, he was kind of this big He's like you imagine Friar Tuck to be, you know, the, just this gigantic, gigantic ex-cop of a man. And so I did feel like, okay, an adult heard me and, and validated that this was really pretty fucked up. But... How, and how many men were involved? I think three. To the best of my knowledge, it's three. And so one guy gets killed. Yeah. What happens to the, the other they ones? Left. Um, they left. They left. They got the shit beat out of them and fled. Yeah. Yeah, they just stopped showing up. But you they know, didn't, having... they didn't want to go to to the police because they didn't want you dragged through. Well, we some... went to the police, and as I'm making the report, and I'm looking at you know my mother's face, and I'm looking at the female officer who's taken my report, I couldn't go through and report all of what had happened. I just looked at my mother's face, and she seemed so ashamed, and I just. Um, I couldn't go through with it. I could not, you know, press charges. I just didn't have it in me. Because there was still this thing like, what did you do that you encouraged this? Why were you hanging out with these guys? Why were you, um, you know, why were you happy to get that attention? And I could not cope with that. Um, I didn't like, I didn't like the way everybody looked at me, which I, you know, as an adult now, I'm like, God, why didn't I... Why didn't I have the strength to come forward and say all you of were, what happened? You were a child. That's <laughs> well, why. Yeah. Um, but I still think, you know, I, I should have done that because then, you know, maybe the other guys wouldn't have done it again. I don't know if they did. But I just think, God, I should have put a stop to it. You know, I should have been strong enough to come forward and say all of what happened. Because stuff happened again after that? I don't know if it did or not. I suspect it did. I suspect they, they did with other girls. 
Oh, I thought you meant with yourself. No, 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 no just didn't me. remember. No, no, no. After okay. that, that was that was all over. Um, they got the shit kicked out of them. But I did feel bad. Um, and you never saw them again? No, never. Which was good. Which was really good. And then I went to therapy and uh, tried to work through it. But I was, you know, after that, pretty suicidal for a long time. Have you ever cried about it? Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. I've okay. cried a ton. Because it, it's, it's surprising how many people... Um, will process it in, an, in another way. Like they won't allow themselves to feel the full pain because then that means surrendering to the fact that they were helpless and powerless. Yeah. And so they will, their brain will come up with all different kinds of ways to say, I enjoyed it. It was my fault. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have been there. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. All these things to avoid, this is my dime store opinion, to keep us from, <laughs> right. from that horrifying thought that we live in a world where we can be that helpless and that powerless. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, the fact that I got into therapy right away, uh, you know, right away within like a week helped a lot, I think. Is and your therapist good? Yes. Yes, they were very good. Although, you know, being so young, I don't remember mm -hmm. exactly what techniques they even used, yeah. but I do remember that was yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, definitely cried a lot. <laughs> cried a lot. Where would be the next place to go in your, in your story? And the next place to go would be that after my parents had split up, my mother had been just completely shut down. She went through a depression that was bad enough that she got sent to bereavement counseling. She would go to work, come home, lock herself in her bedroom and cry. And I had to take care of my siblings. So she was unavailable during this entire, you know, the, like three years after she and my parent, after my dad split up. So, you know, trying to deal with the rape, she's not emotionally available. Um, my dad wasn't emotionally available. He wasn't around at the time. She is the child of a borderline and developed a lot of coping mechanisms that, you know, worked at the time when she was a kid, but didn't work so hot when she was older. Yeah, just shutting down. Just shutting down. And her depression was really great. She resisted going to therapy. She resisted getting on any medication. She decided to just try to gut it out. And so she was not a nurturing figure at all. One really good example I could think of to show where she was at was she was teaching and it was like the last day before winter break and I was 10. I was running a fever, didn't feel good. And my mother was very big on, okay, well, you've got to go to school no matter what. Um, and I said, you know, I really don't feel good. I really don't think I can go to school today, which was unusual for me. I'm not, oh, I mean, look, I'm here today doing the podcast with a, with right. a voice that's thrashed. Right. And she said, suck it up and go. So I go and I faint passing, you know, from class to class, get sent to the school's nurse, uh, to the school nurse. I'm running a fever of 103. They call my godmother, comes and gets me, puts me in a bathtub full of ice. My mother can't get out of class until she's done with class. She then has to take me, drive me out to the hospital where my fever's risen to 104. Had to have a spinal tap to make sure I didn't have oh meningitis. Yeah. Yeah, fear needles, uh, that will do it too. And I spent the next two weeks in the hospital. Turned out I had a kidney infection and it completely backed up and I needed to have surgery. But just that kind of, you know what I'm saying? Hey, I really don't feel good. And she's like, uh, you know, buck up, buttercup. 
that's mm-hmm. a really good example of how just not nurturing she was. And you had to be so, or I had to be so sick, you know, at death's door to finally get some attention and some help. Mm. That sums up the mother during my, okay. my early years. So then what, what would be the next seminal moment or hmm. period of your life? Let's see. Um, you know, in school, I was pretty well liked. Uh, I was always picked first for a team. I got along with everybody. I'm an artist. So I think that kind of excused a lot of my weirdness. You know, people mm-hmm. are like, ah, you're just an artist. You know, what? whatever that you wear, the crazy clothes, but you mm-hmm. but you draw on. That's cool. Um, I was able to hang out with the jocks and the geeks and the stoners and, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much everybody. So I didn't have the really bad high school experience that so many people have had. But I had debilitating acne like my face looked like the planet io it it was it's amazing you don't have any scars on your face only through rigorous dermatology (laughs) applications yeah yeah i have i have a lot of scars on my back oh okay yeah that's amazing i oh man i worked at it like it was another job yeah yeah Putting on retin-A and taking tetracycline. And oh, all, I remember doing oh, all those, too. Oh, my God, too. yeah. I remember being so jealous of my friends that were boys because they could take Accutane, mm-hmm. and I couldn't because I was a girl. I was like, oh, <laughs> bastards. <laughs> but uh, so I never dated in high school. Never dated in junior high. Never got asked out to a dance. None of that. Uh, which really upset me, you know. And when I was, like, say, out at the beach and uh, with my dad, and a boy did come over and start talking to me, all of a sudden, you know, I got to know this look on a boy's face that meant my father was standing right behind me. Mm-hmm. He worked out. He was a bodybuilder as well as being a professor. And so he was just this huge, huge guy. And all of a sudden, every boy I talked to had to go, like, alphabetize their hot sauce collection. So <laughs> there was no dating. till I got to college. Then it was a whole different story. Um, You know, of course, I'm not living at home. I'm away from my parents. And my face is cleared up. I'm thin. And suddenly all the things I was were things that were cool. You know, I was smart. I was hot. And this was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. So I set about making up for lost time in rather spectacular fashion. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) And uh, although I didn't know it at the time, that was the onset of my manic depression. You know, I was, it was just the right age to have that start happening. And um, the way one of the big symptoms of my mania is hypersexuality. And so I was like, wow, I have all these guys that are interested in me. This is, okay, I'm going to go have sex and I'm going to have sex the way I want to have sex, you know, and which is a very common thing with women that have been raped. You know, you want to repeat this, but you want to have it come out well. You know, you and you want to have control. And you want to have control. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, what would this be like if I was in control of it? And then after that, I was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. How much more of this can I do? <laughs> and so, like, in what ways would you have control of it? You would dictate the frequency or the the manner of the sex or what? I would just initiate. Okay. I would initiate. I was very forward, very direct. I mean, it, it was, you know, the joke, the, the line, right? Nice shoes, want to fuck? That was pretty mm-hmm. much my pickup line. And wow. guys were like, yeah, sure. I mean, come on. When you're an 18-year-old guy, this is really not a tough call. Yeah. And that was, you know, it was something I enjoyed. Something I enjoyed a lot. Were there drawbacks to it that you the drawbacks, could feel? Um, the drawbacks were that 
because the reputation I got spread pretty quickly and I was doing really well in college. Um, I went to my school, another West Coast Ivy, on a full scholarship, full academic scholarship. So, I mean, I paid for like my books and the parking fee and, you know, student health, whatever. So I was very lucky in that respect. But it was almost inconceivable that somebody could be good looking and bright and doing well in class. So the rumors began that I was sleeping with my advisor. Uh, that was a big fucking hassle to try and straighten out and, you know, having to explain to the dean that, no, no, I really did earn this grade and I earned it legitimately, not because of my tits. Mm-hmm. That was a problem. Uh, so that was definitely, definitely a drawback. So how did that affect you then, these rumors that you were fucking your, your professors? Uh, you know, I just came to laugh it off. Um you know, I knew what was going on. They knew what was going on. And eventually it became clear that, you know, it was a small school. So it became clear that, no, no, I, I did deserve the grades. And, um, you know, I was in uh, not just on the full scholarship and in the honor society. And I was I would get trotted out whenever they would have a visiting scholar or a big name come. Like I had dinner with Kurt Vonnegut. You know, I was one of the students that got trotted out to go wow. sit with these. Yeah, Kurt How Vonnegut. cool was that? He was an asshole. Was he really? <laughs> he was a total dick. <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> oh, man, he made this poor freshman girl cry. He just leveled her when she asked him if he was happy. And he was like, what kind of fucking question is that? No, nobody who thinks is happy. Are you insane? She was just in tears. And uh, he drew little, when he would sign his name and books that people brought up to him, he would draw little assholes, little stars, little puckered assholes. Let's see who else did I meet. I met, uh, I've met Payma Children. Oh, really? Yeah, she taught me how to meditate. She came to one of my classes. She was friends with one of my professors. and She's got a great book. Well, many great books, but the one oh, in particular that I'm reading called uh, When Things Fall Apart. That's a fantastic one. Yeah. She is just so down to earth and so in her energy. You know, she came into the room and here's this tiny woman, shaved head, in the robes. And we're all like, you know, this is back in the days before the internet. So we mm-hmm. have no idea who she is. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is my friend Pema. And she's here to teach you how to meditate. And I'm like, wow. On the one hand, what a great opportunity. On the other fuck what I wouldn't give to have that time back and talk now that I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm 40 and I have all these questions. And when I was 20, I didn't have, you know, why do you shave your head? Well, I wasn't quite that bad, but it was like, you know, life hadn't beaten me up enough, I guess. Well, I guess it had, but you know, you hadn't maybe gotten the perspective that you'd been through, uh, stuff that needed healing. Yeah. 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 So I, I mean, I've met a lot of famous people uh, because of that, because I was, you know, the star student that got trotted out to go have to sit through these dinners. And it was really tedious. Ever since then, I've had a real loathing of like black tie events where you have to sit there and make I polite conversation. Just make oh, my like, legs tired. Oh, God. It's just that when people dress up, something about me just wants to go inside myself because it just feels like there's, it's almost like they're hiding what they don't like about themselves. Yes. And, yes. And I've, I've just, I don't know. It, there's this pretense. The yeah. whole thing is pretense. Yeah. It's like you have, you feel like, oh, now I have to be a different person. Right. Now I must be, well, you know, we all have me and then yeah. we have me incorporated. Right. That's me incorporated who right. shows up at those right. black tie events. Yeah. So where would the next place be? To, the next place to... would be when my manic depression really began to set in in my second year of college. And my mood swings began to cycle so rapidly. Just... To, to the point where 
At noon, I'd be on top of the world. At two o'clock, I'd want to kill myself. At four o'clock, I'd be back on top of the world. By six, I'd want to kill myself. Wow. And I was becoming, uh, in my manic phases, it was swinging into psychosis. It was really not good and, and very delusional. And in a, I had a lucid stretch of hours. I was like, this cannot be normal. Cannot be normal. The problem with mania, especially in academia, is that it's encouraged. Yeah. You go to college. People nobody, take speed to achieve that. <clears throat> nobody thinks anything of um, staying up all night to write a paper. Right. You know, I once wrote this 50-page paper on uh, the Egyptian ruins of Karnak, complete with 10 watercolor illustrations in the space of eight hours. <laughs> and nobody thought this was unusual. Nobody at all said, you know, I think there's something wrong with you. Could you. Be, you could be a professor. That's what they were thinking. I, yes. Yes, you could be. You could, you can mask those symptoms really, really well. Um, but, you know, eventually things just got bad enough. I thought, all right, this can't be normal. So I went to student health and I told them what was going on. And they said, yes, you are very likely bipolar type one. You need to get to a hospital now. And they, they'd given me a choice. They said, well, I was like, hospital. They said, well, you could do outpatient treatment, but that's going to take about six weeks because, you know, the drugs we want to give you, they're going to take about six weeks to work at a low enough dose if you're outpatient. If you're in the hospital, because we can be monitoring you, we can give you a much higher dose much more quickly and, you know, get you stabilized. And I was like, I don't have six weeks. I'm not even sure I have six hours. So, yes, off to the hospital we go. That was pretty embarrassing, um, you know, having the ambulance come and they put you on the stretcher, whether you want. I was like, I could walk. They're like, no, no, you go on the stretcher. And I was oh. like, what the fuck? You know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this isn't good. I'm being helpless. Like, this is not cool. Not digging it. Luckily, the EMTs that showed up to, you know, take me to the hospital. Of course, they're used to this. They do this every day and they were pretty good. But I was freaking out. I was like, oh, this is a really bad idea. Got to the hospital, had to check in. Then I had to call everybody and tell them where I was. Um, student health notified my professors. They called my mother. They called my father. That was really embarrassing. In fact, it was quite humiliating to have to admit, oh, I can't handle this. But of course, people had known something was wrong. I mean, I hadn't shown up. I hadn't shown up to like more than three classes all semester. And the scary thing was I was still pulling an A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So being in the inpatient setting of the hospital was, I did not like it. But luckily, because I'd voluntarily checked myself in, and I was pretty fucking motivated to get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. So they put me on lithium, um, which at the time was a lifesaver, really was a lifesaver. But the doctors were very upfront with me. They said, you know, one of the consequences of this drug is that you will gain weight and you will gain a lot of weight. And I was like, okay, well, how much weight are we talking? They said, oh, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds. And I ended up gaining 150 pounds. So that was rough. They also said, you know, you're not going to be able to have children because uh, it causes a birth defect called Epstein's anomaly where the valves of the heart don't form correctly in the fetus. So it's pretty much if you do get pregnant, you have to have uh, an abortion mm. because it's just not, uh, it, there is no way it can live outside you at right. all. So I thought, well, you know, I mean, I was 19 at the time. I'm like, ah, I don't want kids. That's fine. Looking back, I realized, you know, that was a really life-changing decision that I kind of was, I don't know that I was cavalier about it, but, you know, when you're 19, you're a woman, you're like, ah, I'll have plenty of time to have kids or sort this out later. 
Not so realizing. you could you could have kids afterwards if you went off it, or it bars no, you from still ever. Enough. Um, it depends on how long you were on lithium for. Mm. I was on it for thirteen years, so and at a high enough dose where there's still uh, residual lithium in my system, apparently. So I'm really reluctant to even try to have children. What are you on now? Uh, now I'm taking lamictal and buspirone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when Lamictal came on the market about three, nearly four years ago okay. to treat bipolar type 1, I switched to that immediately. It's it's less uh, less side effects than uh, lithium. Well, one of the misnomers about drugs is that they have side effects. You No, drugs have effects, and you pick the effects that you like. <laughs> and you put up with the ones you don't like. So it's But it's weight neutral. And mm-hmm. since I switched to Lamictal, I've lost 125 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So... You make this decision that I'm going to go on this. I'm not going to have kids. Um, how does being on lithium then at that point, how does that affect your life? It affected my life immensely. Um, Positively? Negatively? Both. On the one hand, I was able to function. On the other, I had to completely retrain myself in how to think because it felt like I was thinking through mud. You know, once you've been manic, then you take a mood stabilizer like lithium. You're like, oh my God. You know, I would read a page... And not be able to remember what it was I just read. That's That was horrific for somebody like me that I don't mm. remember not reading. I had to retrain myself. I had to um, train myself how to work more consistently instead of just trying to wait till the last minute to get everything done in one gigantic rush. Mm-hmm. I had to retrain how I dealt with other people. You know, I learned some really bad habits about dealing with other humans and had to go to therapy to kind of undo that what were some of the bad habits things like just uh being an arrogant bitch mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i was so used to being the smartest person around and i had a real disdain for people that were less intelligent than i was i was arrogant i was arrogant it was not a good quality in myself it's, it's funny there are people that have been emotionally damaged that are very very bright it's like their intellect can become their greatest enemy because it kind of it's like it becomes their their god and their and their badge and their sword and their shield oh, all completely. in one and you don't realize that there's also an emotional intelligence and yes. there's a spiritual intelligence and because they get so wrapped up in their intellectual scholastic intelligence they think that is going to solve all their problems oh yeah well you've used it to you know analyze and unravel every other problem in your life yeah why not just apply the same tool to everything else? And, you know, then you realize, like, wait a second, I've been using a screwdriver when I really needed a blowtorch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it was it was a struggle for me, learning how to rethink everything. At the same time, uh, my father and I had become estranged. He had become involved with a very cultish, um, non-traditional Christian sect. Like, this this group was actually on the FBI's top 10 cult list. Wow. And he just could not countenance that I did not believe the same thing he believed at all, at all. We would have horrible arguments about religion, and that um, it didn't go well. His mania was untreated. You know, once because, you know, when you go into a hospital and you do the intake or even when you go to therapy and you do intake, they ask you, you know, so any history of mental illness Mm -hmm. in your family? I was kind of the first person that 
um, admitted it. And then I went back through and started asking around. And it turns out, oh, my dad's sister is manic depressive. My dad's brother is manic depressive. My mother's depressed. My grandmother's depressed. You know, it just, you uncover all this stuff. I opened the can of worms. And I'd said to my father, you know, we cannot have a relationship until you get some help, some serious therapy and help. He was so far gone in his mania, he believed he was a prophet. He believed he could cure people through prayer. He believed he could regrow eyeballs. Oh, yes. I mean, wow. yeah. And I just said, man, until you get some some medication to get to get both of us on the same planet, we, there is no relationship possible between us. And we still, we have not spoken since 1993. That's got to be really hard. It was hard. Uh, our arguments became physical. Um, you know, he just would get so enraged. And yeah, that was hard. It was really hard. So where do we go from there? Um, After, let's see, after... Um, getting estranged from my father. And I got a lot of pressure from my family to make, to patch things up with them. And they all thought, oh, you know, it's just a phase. It wasn't just a phase. Um, they're like, well, you should be a good daughter and you should, you know, talk to him. You should try to make nice with him. I said, no, it's not possible. And it took my family about 15 years to really figure out, hey, you know what? He's not coming back. He's not reachable. Um, I was right. He's still untreated. He's still untreated. He's still busy trying to regrow eyeballs. In the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's off doing that. So this, you know, the parent who had been my major source of support when I was a young child is now just completely out of my life. My mother was very ashamed of me and told me as much that she was very disappointed and ashamed and embarrassed that she had this kid that was manic depressive and ruining their life. Of course, my mother's version of ruining my life. I'm still on a full scholarship at school. I'm still graduating magna cum laude. I'm still going to graduate school. I still won an award that was basically smartest person in the university. I'm still holding down two jobs. This is a ruined life in my mother's point of view, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, to cope with all this, um, I, would go on med I would go on lithium and then think, oh, I'm fine. I don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. Then I'd go off it. Then I'd start drinking. Then the mania would start. Then I'd start sleeping with everybody in sight and then i didn't have to a point where i'm like oh god okay i've wrecked my life again all right back on the meds we go and that cycle perpetuated for about three years so i finally was like all right this this is perhaps not working i've now yeah. i've now screwed with every single variable in this equation right. and yeah it's looking like i'm gonna have to just knuckle down and take the meds and go to therapy go to therapy and actually really mean it when I go to therapy instead of just sit there for an hour and shine the therapist on, mm -hmm. which is what I'd been doing. So that was hard. That yeah. was a rough three years. Yeah. It's like if you go to therapy and you are not willing to be fully open and honest and vulnerable, um, it can be really hard for that therapist to do their job. Yeah. I made it very hard for the therapist to do their job. Um, I was like, okay, we need to skip to the back of the book because I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got it all figured out. I got it all figured out. I'm a smarty pants. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, and it took me a while to come around to the idea that people could be more emotionally intelligent than I was. And to respect that. Do you remember a breakthrough in therapy or any revelation or any kind of sea change in how you felt or thought? 
Um, no, I, I can't say that I do. I don't remember any one point where it was just a landmark. So it was just kind of gradual? It was very gradual. It was a very gradual lifting of things where life just kind of became easier, where I looked back and went, hey, this doesn't hurt as much anymore. It doesn't hurt as much. We spent a lot more time trying to help me figure out a different way to be as an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, how to, how to control my moods, how to control my temper, how to just self, how to uh, soothe myself, you know, learning all those tools in the coping toolbox, you know. What were, what were some of the... Uh... Oh, man. Um, meditating regularly, exercising regularly, eating a decent diet, making sure I got decent enough sleep, because that is a very big, big trigger for me with mania, is if I don't get enough sleep... My body will function on three hours, but if I do three hours too many nights in a row, it, it kicks over into full-blown mania, and then I'm not sleeping for like four days. Mm. And that's with medication. Um, learning how to think before I speak instead of just flying off the handle, that was a big one. Learning that perhaps, um, you know, doing anger management where like you go and you hit a heavy bag instead of screaming at other people. Yeah, looking back at the person I was in my 20s, I was, oh man, I'm so ashamed of that person. I was not easy to be around. You know, you didn't live your 20s unless you look back in horror. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, I have a few friends that have been friends of mine since I was 16, and they stuck with me during my 20s, and oh my God, I owe them a lot. I don't, mm. I'm not sure I would still be friends with me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Trying to think, uh, what next? I, I think probably what next is I got married, and that ended up being a very abusive marriage. Which I didn't know it because the guy seemed so different at the time, but he was a replica of my father. Shocker! Shocker! I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, he became very abusive. He fell into. Um, he was from another country. When he moved here, he fell into a very deep depression. And at first I thought, well, you know, it's God. It's a big adjustment. You know, he's lost his friends, his family, his whole support group. Um, of course, it's natural to be depressed. And so, I mean, believe me, I knew depression. So I was I was there for him and I nurtured him. And he just became uh, very subtly and very gradually very emotionally abusive. And that took me a long time to figure out. Until I'm like, why do I just feel so fucking horrible about myself? I mean, I would dread him coming home. Well, you know, most emotionally abusive people, their success stories in getting away with it is that they are supremely manipulative. Oh, yeah. And they play the long con. They may not even realize it themselves. Right. But they are in for the long haul and they can be incredibly charming. Oh, yes. Up front. Yes. And so they draw you in and they will have things in their lives that they can point to that justify why they did this or they did that. Exactly. And so you don't see the pattern as a whole. You just, they convince you each of these isolated incidents, there's a reason for this. Right. right. And then one day you look at the pattern as a whole and you go, oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, the frog in the pot, right? Exactly. That, that death by degrees where every little tiny step you go, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. But then you look back at where you were when you started and you're like, oh, my God, what's happened to my life? Yeah. I'm not the person I was. Yeah, I was, I was miserable when I was married. Absolutely miserable. 
my ex-husband managed to find a lot of my hot buttons about my looks and um he would do things like um he would be very sexually withholding which was just um unthinkable for me i'm like isn't this the point of being married you know mm-hmm. and i never had a problem being faithful to him you know once i was married i was married and even though i'd had this past and i was candid with him about my past but he would hold that over me he was constantly accusing me of going out and sleeping with other guys and i'm like I, you know that's just not me you know I've, i i made a vow i gave you my word i'm i did not look left i did not look right and only had eyes for him that didn't matter to him. Uh, you know, on his planet, I was busy sleeping with everything that moved, when in reality, it was him having the affairs. And, and your past, for somebody who's manipulative and living in that sickness, that's power to oh, them. Oh, yeah. Anything, any yes. weakness on you, and that is, I mean, it's obvious to state it, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's the most wobbly foundation you could build any relationship on yes. is where your vulnerability is used against you yeah. instead of it being something that that brings you closer to somebody which is what vulnerability is supposed to right, supposed right. to do when it does the opposite of that it's it's doomed it was doomed yeah it was doomed he was very um yeah he was very hurtful about the way i looked he used to do things like um you know, this is back in the day when porn, it took forever to download. And, you know, you're like, you'd be waiting line by line for, <laughs> for the image to load. So, you know, he had, uh, had a subscription to Hustler and Playboy, whatever. You know, I, that's never bothered me. But he would leave. He, what did bother me is he would leave post-it notes on the magazine with notes like, this is what a real woman looks like. What? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to introduce other... He wanted to sleep with other women and he wanted me to watch so that he said uh what was how did he phrase it so that i could see what fucking a real woman was like he was really hurtful that took me a long time to get over and obviously a part of you must it yeah must have believed it it because you stayed with him i did stay with him i did stay with him it wasn't until a good friend of mine took me aside and said you know (laughs) what are you doing because i wasn't very candid about what was going on in the marriage. I was like, oh, God, I, I don't feel like I could tell anybody. The one friend I did tell was like, you've got to get out of this. You have to get out. And I wanted to try to make it as long as I could. You know, I really did believe in, in honoring my commitment. But there was this whole meltdown where a good friend of mine who'd been like a sister to me, her father had committed suicide. And he was like a surrogate father. He committed suicide. One day after um, I found out my husband had been seeing strippers and getting lap dances from them, lap dances from them, and I'm like, Ooh, you know, watching a stripper's cool, lap dance not so cool. Like, so you violated this boundary that I specifically asked you not to violate. My friend's father's just committed suicide. I said, that's it. We're separated. Um, you know, we'll we'll stay married on paper until you until the green card paperwork comes through, and then we're done. But I want you out of the house. We're, we're absolutely done. That was kind of like that whole, that was the kind of just the perfect storm. I was like, I don't know what's on the other side, but it's got to be better than this. Yeah, It has to be better than this. Then followed a month of just, he would come home and we'd have screaming matches till four in the morning and um, trying to pressure me into staying married. And that was a really rough month. That was, a, it got so bad. I flew out of town to go visit a friend that lived in Oregon just so I could sleep. Mm. I was so sleep deprived. 
he eventually moved out, which was fantastic. Um, but it took about two more years to get the divorce paperwork finalized. Yeah, never tried to divorce an attorney. It doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole world of suck. Um, and so it took me a long time to put myself back together after that. Then I started going on what I like to call the year of 100 bad dates. Because it really was 100, I counted. These dates where um, I was very candid about my weight online. You know, recent, current pictures, the whole deal. And yet, I'd go and meet these guys in person, and they would look at me, and I could just see they're, they're like, oh, this is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted. <laughs> One guy, it actually said, he's like, we met at Starbucks, and he looks at me, and he's like, you'd be really pretty if you weren't so big. I said, if your dick was as big as your mouth, I might be interested. And I dumped my latte in his lap and stormed the fuck out of that Starbucks. But it was really like I – there was something in my vibe where I just could not attract anybody. You know, there was probably a sign from the universe that I should like work on myself and mm -hmm. stop trying to frantically find somebody to validate me. And it was um, it was after that that a friend of mine suggested, actually, this is a friend who had used an escort service. He said, you know, you're really good at sex. If you're going on all these bad dates anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <coughs> that was that was pretty much how we put it. I was like, well, OK, let's give this a shot. You know, let's see how this goes. And um, so I did. I did. And it was amazingly gratifying for my self-esteem really yeah yeah i was like oh i'm not finding out no no there are guys that find me attractive and they find me attractive enough to pay for my time oh sweet you know so it was very um fulfilling what do you remember about your first time doing it um i remember that i had that disassociative feeling where I began to, I just slipped outside my body. It became very compartmentalized. It was almost like I had to come back to myself after, after that hour was up, which I had not expected. I had not expected that at all. Are there clients where you don't have to do that? No. So every client you have to kind yeah. of leave yourself? Pretty much, yeah. It's, it's definitely, you know, like we talked about me and me incorporated. It's me incorporated that shows up for that. And is it... Went from the door opening, or is it just the f the physical act of it? Pretty much the door opening. Yeah, because I can no longer. It's a it's an interaction in which I'm not myself. I'm being paid to play a role, which is generally therapist. Yeah, you know, and so what what I need and what I want is totally on. You know, that's not even entered into the equation. Right. You know, to which I would say, well, a regular therapist doesn't have to leave their body. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> a regular therapist doesn't get paid 300 bucks an hour either. Uh, some of them do. Some of but, them do. But, some of them uh, do. But, you know? yeah, it's a slim, slim majority of them. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me go to some of the questions yeah, sure. that I've I posed. I, I put a uh, question out on Twitter I said, I'm going to be interviewing a woman who moonlights as an escort, a.k.a. prostitute. Um, are you uncomfortable with the word prostitute? No. Okay. Would a union or legalization actually help her? 
I think it wouldn't necessarily help me, but it would help a lot of other women that don't have the autonomy. You know, if that's their only job, they definitely need a union. You know, they need health care. They need benefits. They need um, some kind of protection to make sure they're not taken advantage of. You know, I've got the advantage of I could do this. I could not do this. Because you have a day job. I have a day job. Yeah. I have a whole professional career. And so I've got the luxury of saying, no, I, I don't want to do this or, you know, I do it when I want to. Hmm. That would be very different if I was trying to pay the bills doing just this. So why do it if you have to leave your body and you have a day job that pays the bills? Because I think it does actually help people. You know, and it definitely coincides with uh, the phases of my mania. You know, when I'm depressed, it's the last thing I do. I, I don't work then. So there have been a long stretches of time where I'm, I'm not working. But I think it's when done right, it can be really validating for the person that you're with. And it makes me feel good to help people. Like I saw uh, somebody on, um, God, just a couple nights ago. All he wanted to do was curl up in bed, be naked, cuddle, and he started sobbing about how much he missed his ex-girlfriend and how he'd blown that relationship. And, you know, he's he's sobbing to the point, like, you very rarely see men weep where, you know, he's blowing his nose and there's snot mm. in my hair. <laughs> and um, he's clinging to me like he's, like, I'm a life preserver and he's drowning. And I felt like, okay, I'm doing something worthwhile here. You know, this is actually helping this guy. And that was not about sex at all. Yeah. At all. Yeah, but he wanted that connection. He wanted intimacy, but that's the only way he knew how to ask for it. And he knows you're not going to leave for those 45 minutes, so he can be oh, as I, needy. I ended up and... spending like four hours with the guy. Because I'm like, oh, God, I've never been somebody that watches the clock. You know, I've never been like, oh, I'm sorry, this is minute 56, right. and we're done now. Because I think that's just a fucked up way to So be. you didn't charge him for the extra three no. hours? No. Um. What is, what's the impact your job has had on your mental health, somebody asks? Hmm. That's a good one. I would say in one way, it bolsters my self-esteem. Um, you know, every time I begin to feel like, oh, God, what if I'm really ugly? What if I'm really not attractive? I could say, okay, well, wait a second. Here's some concrete evidence that shows I am. Mm -hmm. Um However, it has had it has had the effect of making relationships more difficult. How, could it, how could it not? Yeah, yeah. How could it not? Um, although when I was in, I was in a very long term relationship, and when I was in it, I did not work as an escort. Didn't feel the need to. Didn't feel compelled to. Um, but it did. I I discovered. You know, I was candid with the with my ex boyfriend about having been an escort. And at the time, he said it didn't bother him. But then after we split up, you know, we were, we were talking a few months later, and he admitted that it actually had really bothered him a great mm -hmm. deal. And then it's one of the reasons we. Um, it's the main reason he couldn't stay with me. He just couldn't get over it. That that really was rough. That was really rough. What do you get out of the experience? My assumption is it's only for the money, but I could be wrong. Um, I think I think you kind of answered that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not for the money. Um, it's to do something. It's to help people, you know. And it's to feel validated myself. Mm. You know, it's an ego stroke, for sure. For sure. But it's also, I mean, if somebody sees me and then they leave feeling better, mm. that's really good. Um 
I feel like I have done something worthwhile. But there are some guys where they're just, you know, they're even more depressed when they leave than when they showed up. And I'm like, oh, God, I, I feel terrible about that when that happens. But no, it's definitely not the money. Not the money at all. If it were about the money, I would, you know, be the kind of person that does watch the clock. And How often do you show up and it's a guy that you look at and you're like, I can't, I can't have sex with this guy. It's not, just, there, there's a repulsion there. Um, not very often. And in every case, the repulsion has been not because I find the guy unattractive. It's because I've gotten a bad, a bad vibe. Like, ooh, this guy... This guy is a great way to end up on the eleven o'clock news. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that it's a it's the danger spidey sense, not a mm-hmm. oh I don't like his haircut. You can't do this job and not be able to find something attractive about men. You, you can't. You've got to be able to find what's attractive in every single man you run across, and you got to just look for that. And that's kind of your key to the interaction. And I'm pretty good at that pretty good at that i think it goes with being an artist and being able to you know you've got to really see who people are pretty quickly what's your favorite type of client my favorite type of client is actually the kind of client i see a lot it's um he's usually in his 40s he's um a geek you know in it or he's another professional and has a sense of humor uh doesn't take himself too seriously and we laugh a lot where there's a, a there's a joy and there's a, a this great positive energy in the in the interaction usually it's the kind of guy where i mean what was charlie sheen's quote i don't pay to get sex i pay for the woman to go away mm-hmm. yeah they're almost all really really attractive men where you would never suspect like oh this guy's got to pay for sex well no he's not paying for sex he's paying to have this be a very clean boundary mm-hmm. what are some of the things that men have requested you to to do? Have you ever had a female client? Uh, no. What are some of the things that men have requested you to do that you couldn't or wouldn't do? Uh, I don't do anal sex. Uh, not my thing. Also, it's a massive health risk. Mm-hmm. Massive, massive health risk. Um, there's. I won't have unprotected sex because, again, that's just fucking stupid um i will not see married clients will not will not a couple guys have managed i've got a pretty good sense for who's married and who isn't Mm -hmm. when i talk to them on the phone before we Mm -hmm. make an appointment Uh, a couple of them have slipped by me and i can tell because they're the ones that feel horrible when they leave they Mm -hmm. feel worse at the end than than better because i i think that's a fucked up thing to do you know it's one thing if you're both single you're there's no ties, then it's just like, all right, we're, we're doing something that uh, this may sound like a rash, rationalization to some people, but honestly, look, a guy takes you out to dinner, right? Dinner and a show, he's spending quite a bit of money. You really want to tell me that you're not doing almost exactly the same thing by acting interested in what the guy has to say and paying attention and flattering him and making him feel important for the duration of the date? No, this way is just more honest. It's a lot more honest. Predicated on the assumption that the woman going out on that date is not into that guy. Yeah. But a lot of them aren't. Yeah. A lot of them aren't. You know, there are women that are like, oh, well, I'm, I don't like him, but I want mm-hmm. the dinner. <laughs> you know? Um, I had made a joke on uh, 
an episode about there was some I read some poll about crying and sobbing and a percentage of crying that leads to sobbing. And then I crack some joke about and then the sobbing leading to masturbating or master sobbing. Yeah, somebody (laughs) master sobbing. Oh, my God, that's perfect. And so somebody somebody asked, um, do you ever have guys that um, what was it were the sobbing? They're sobbing while they're having sex. Mm, at the very end, at the very end, when they're when they're close to coming or right mm-hmm. after they come, then they'll sob. But okay. or before. But there seems to be something in men where you, yeah, during the like beginning to middle part of that arousal, they, there there is no crying. You know, it's like urinating. Mm-hmm. They can't do both at the same time. Uh, what type of role playing? Um, have you engaged in? Um, I most often get asked, I get put in this maternal role. Um, people, men want their mothers, and I guess it's just because of my looks. I have very big tits. So, you know, that's kind of the, that's, if you're drawn to that, you're drawn to me. Um, people have asked me to be a dom. People have asked me to be a sub. I can switch back and forth pretty easily. Uh, I don't have a lot invested in either one. But no, mother, I would say. Which is kind of a little, the mother in the nurturing way. They don't want to actually be fucking their mother. They want to be cuddled. Mm-hmm. Do you ever orgasm? Yeah. How how frequently? What percentage of the time do you? I would it? say eighty percent of the time. Um, do you always pretend to orgasm if you're if you're not? No. No. I figure you know. Look, the whole point is to be honest with each other. So mm-hmm. let's really be honest. Um, do you envision getting out of this at some point? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, Definitely. you're not going to do this until you're, you know, 100 years old. Oh, but, God, no. <laughs> but is there a game plan? And, and what is that game plan? Is this open-ended? Are you just going to go until you feel like yeah. you don't want to do it anymore? Yeah, until I feel like I don't want to do it anymore or until I'm in a serious relationship again, mm-hmm. you know? Um no, but I didn't have like a game plan like, oh, I'm doing this to put myself through law school, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I just will do it until it stops being fun. Do you ever worry that there is an injury to your soul from when you were nine years old that might not be fully healing because you're doing this? Hmm. I'm, I've definitely been worried that there is something in me that broke irreparably at that point. I don't know if this is making it worse or not making it worse. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. You know, I'm a big believer that emotionally, very, very, very few people are ever broken. Yeah. I think it it is amazing that the the horror stories that I've seen people heal from Mm -hmm. is amazing. So I I really believe, I don't like to use the word... um, broken mm-hmm. because it kind of means it's irreparable right and right that's why i kind of like the word the word healing but i don't know that, that just kind of occurred to me mm. um that i hope i hope this isn't um something that is standing between you being the the, the full the full you that you can be mm-hmm. maybe you are already that person because I don't you know I don't know you that well you you seem very well adjusted and you're <laughs> articulate and fun to talk to mm-hmm. um, 
but I'd be lying if I said that I don't I don't think that or am concerned about that for mm-hmm. for well, people that, that are in in prostitution and right. you know you in in particular um because that stuff is so that you know that sexual abuse it it's it is a tangled bowl of spaghetti oh yeah that's for sure that's for sure i don't know if you can ever really pick through all the threads and untangle it you know i think the metaphor that comes to mind when i think about it is it's like having your legs shattered and then pinned and glued back together with metal plates and pins you're always going to have a limp you can walk mm-hmm. but you're always going to limp and so I feel like, you know, it's a limp and I've learned how to get around with it. I've learned how to live my life with it. It's not crippling. It's not debilitating, mm-hmm. but it is still there, you know, and it would be foolish of me to pretend it isn't. What do you say to a client when you show up and you're like, I can't do this? I just say, I, th- I think this isn't going to work out. We're not going to be able to do this. And do they ask you why? Yeah, sometimes they do. And I'm just very, um, you know, I use the broken record technique. This just isn't going to work out for me. Mm -hmm. And this isn't going to work out for me. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. This isn't going to work out for me. This isn't going to work out for me. I'm sorry. You know, and just. Have you ever had to flee? No. No. No, I've had to flee when I was. just simply dating. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, I had to flee when I was dating. I had to flee when I discovered like the guy I was sleeping with, like his girlfriend was coming home. There have been some exciting escapes through windows and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my life would totally be a really bad comedy. Mm-hmm. French sex farce is what my life would be. What, to, to somebody out there, what, what do you think is the biggest myth about what you do or what is something about what you do that people don't realize? Well, I think perhaps it's something we've already touched on was that it's just about the money Mm. or it's just about the sex. That's not true. And, you know, that may be true for somebody who's, you know, work in the corner. That may be true for somebody that's signed up with an escort service. But once you get into the tier of an independent provider where people have autonomy that's not the case at all. You know, uh, I'm not doing this to buy crack. I'm not mm-hmm. doing this to, you know, to give my money mm-hmm. to somebody else. I'm doing this for me. And I think people don't understand that it's, and it's so sad. It's that men feel like they have to pay in order to overcome the guilt they feel at not pleasing women. Like a lot of men just really, really want to please women. And if they pay the money, then that gets taken away. It's like, then they can ask for what they really want. Then they can be who they are and they don't have to worry. And it's also somebody to listen to them. Most men don't open up. They don't have close friends they confide in. If they confide in anybody, it's their wives or their girlfriends. But sometimes they don't even do that. And, you know, I would say to to guys that are considering this, you know, try to see if you can get this need met another way. I love that. I love that somebody is recommending somebody try something else before they do, yeah. before they come, before they come to you. I love, I, yeah. I love that. I love that. That's, 
Yeah, but, I mean, right. sometimes it is really straightforward. Like uh, there was a client I saw who was married, but his wife had cancer. I know this is kind of, you know, it's a trophy, mm. but his wife did have cancer and she was in her terminal stages and he had not been able to have sex with her for like two and a half years. And he, you know, came and saw me. And I'm like, well, okay, well, that's a very straightforward thing. You mm. know, that's a guy that just really needs to have sex with no mm. strings attached in a fairly caring environment. Mm. That's fine. Yeah. You know, if that's the position you're in, you know, go find a sex surrogate, go find an escort, go, you know, meet mm-hmm. that need in a in a fairly healthy and safe way rather than, say, getting involved with your best friend's wife mm-hmm. and ruining a whole bunch of people's lives. Yeah. But if all you want is that connection, go find somebody else to, to do that with. Because this is really fucking expensive, you know? Um, anything you want to add? Um, hmm. I can't think of anything. Go ahead. You want to start? We'll start with our fears. I'll start. Do you have your fears? I'm going to be reading the uh, fears uh, of a listener, uh, Kim. Okay. Shall I wait for you to get them out? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm afraid I'm too ugly and fat to be loved. I fear having to claw my way out of a styrofoam box. Oh, that's... A random one. Uh, I'm afraid my tits are my only good feature, and once they start sagging, no one will be interested in me. I fear not graduating or getting into college, and six months from now, during prom, I will hear all my friends' names being announced with the colleges they are going to, and they will say my name, and then an awkward silence will follow, and they will say, yes, well, in a condescending way, and hurriedly say someone else's name. Oh, <laughs> oh poor Kim. <laughs> Kim, I've been to a West Coast Ivy. It's not, college is overrated, honey. Um, I'm afraid no one wants me, just the things I can do for them. I fear my spelling and grammar are disgusting, and you will read this thinking, yes, uh, you very much might fail in school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I'm unlovable. I fear I will sink completely into depression, and people will forget that I, how I really was, uh, how I was when I was okay. Mm. I'm afraid I'll lose a hand or eye in an accident. I fear this is all in vain. I'm fooling myself. My therapist and psychiatrist are lying to me, and no matter what I do, I will go crazy and die. Well, we're all going to die no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I should have laughed at Kim's fears, Kim. I'm really sorry. You're probably, like, throwing things at the radio now. Uh, I'm afraid my famous friends merely tolerate me now that they're famous. Um... I fear I will never give up my uh, sick addiction of self-harm. I fear forgetting to wash the razor and someone seeing the blood on it. I'm afraid I'm not cool enough to make it or to hang with my cool friends. Mm. I fear that the lifeguard saw me take photos of myself at the pool last week and think of me as a vain, uh, conceited stuck-up. I'm afraid I'll never be successful. I fear I will... I fear I will be afraid to just let myself be still without the fanfare, lies, and anxiety, deference, and anticipation. I'm afraid I'm irreparably broken in some fundamental way. I fear the only way to help people is to have money, and I will never be able to without money. Mm. I'm afraid I'll give in to my suicidal impulses someday. I fear the emptiness I feel inside will grow, and one day nothing will matter to me, and I will lose my humanity and personality. Mm. I'm afraid someone listening to this podcast will deduce who I am. I fear singing with my family, ruining the melody of beautiful voices with the croak of mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid I don't matter to anyone and never will. I fear letting people down, 
that one screw up will reveal I'm not as good as they think I am and they find out that I'm a fraud. I'm afraid of confined spaces. Uh, I fear never finding a country I can call home. Moving from country to country, I think I've lost the experience of growing up in a place called home, and I fear I will never experience this. Oh, mine's so mundane after that. I'm afraid of electricity. <laughs> that's, that's it for uh, for Kim's fears. Okay. Do you have any, any more fears you want to add? Oh, my God. I have a lot more. Do you okay. want me to stop? Or yeah, do you just want me just give me a, give a couple? Give me a, yeah, pick a couple of highlights. Okay. Uh, I'm afraid of being the only woman in a group of men and failing at something, so it then becomes about my gender and me failing. Uh, That's a good one. Yeah. I'm afraid I'm not interesting enough for this podcast. Uh, You couldn't be more (laughs) wrong about this. This was such a fascinating uh, interview. Uh, I'm afraid I'll never accept a man who, or I'll never find a man who will accept my past and not be intimidated by me. I'm afraid of disappointing the people I love. I'm afraid I'm not desirable. I'm afraid I'll never feel real passion again. I think that's, I think that's it for the fears. Right, let's go to loves. Okay. Um, I love being outside when the sun rises, feeling fear at being in the dark, then watching the sky light up moments later. Reminds me that if you just wait, things will clear and you'll see that there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, that's beautiful. Mm, that's, that's very good. I love being able to make a man come. I love furry socks that make my feet look like uh, I'm being a Muppet on a cold day. Oh, I just want to give Kim, Is that Kim's loves? It is Kim's I just want loves. to give Kim a hug. Yeah, she is She is a just a, yeah, just a lovely person. Yeah, I love the sound of men's deep voices. I love the feeling of stomping down on my trucks in victory when I'm landing a flip on my skateboard. She is accomplished. Yeah. I love my first bitter, sweet cup of coffee in the morning. Oh, that is a good one. Mm -hmm. I love running so fast that I feel limitless. Mm. I love the orgasm you have to struggle for. (laughs) That's a great one. (laughs) Um, I love kisses on the shoulder. I love reading and losing myself in a good story. I love when my little sister's hand tightens around mine when we're walking together because she wants to make sure I'm not too far ahead. Oh, I love video games. Uh, I love the retarded, ridiculous, happy frenzy my dog goes into when he sees I'm holding his leash and he knows we're going for a walk. Oh, that's the best, isn't Mm -hmm. it? I love the paintings of Caravaggio and Rembrandt. I do love Caravaggio. Have you seen the LACMA exhibit? No, but I want to go. You got to go. I want to go see it. You got to go. I remember taking an, an art history class in college and just being like, snooze, 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 and then seeing one of his paintings and being like, wow. Oh. It, it, it was the subtlety and the, and the use of um, light and shadow. It's like this guy came out of nowhere. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. They are stunning. When you go to the exhibit and you and you see his paintings, his paintings stand out because uh, there's also paintings by his peers in there. But mm. you can immediately pick out which ones are Caravaggio's and, and the, the subtlety of the expression on people's faces and oh, their yeah. and their b- body gestures yes. uh, is is really it's huge. It's almost like a photograph. It is and it isn't because when you look at these paintings up close, of course, they're very large. And so mm. the brushwork is actually very loose. It's not tightly rendered like, mm. say, uh, Durer. Durer would be very tightly rendered. Mm. Or, pretend I know or Jerome. But Caravaggio's brushwork is loose. But when you stand back, mm. it looks phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I recommend that exhibit. I love singing 
worship songs to God and lifting my hands up with the others and feeling pure love wash over me. I love eating bloody rare meat. I love talking on Skype, calling with my friends who've left to other countries and knowing the distance means so little when they mean so much. Mm. I love sushi that melts on my tongue. Oh, you know what? Hers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread hers again. Oh, okay. uh, it's, it's, it's longer than that. I love talking on Skype, calling with my friends who've left uh, to other countries and knowing the distance between uh, means so little when they mean so much. I can't believe they love me enough to stay in touch. Those people who said we'd lose touch are wrong. And wrong oh. is in capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> I love the smell of fresh cut hay. Oh, that's good. We've, we get grass a lot, but uh, hay we've never got. Mm. I love when I'm unable to make it to something and my friends text or message me later saying that they'd wished I was there. I love the smell of fresh sweat on a man. I love the inventive and amazing flavors Ben & Jerry's ice cream has created, especially the classic chocolate chip cookie dough flavor and the Canadian tree hugger flavor. There's a Canadian tree hugger flavor? I guess. Wow. Festivus is my favorite Ben & Jerry's. It's seasonal. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. Though. I haven't either. Oh, it's like cinnamon and pumpkin. and Oh, it's oh fucking... I like the one made with Guinness. Oh, I've never had that oh, one. Oh, that, I... that was good. I love being touched and cuddled for mm. hours and hours. I can never get enough of that. I love that note my big brother left me when he was living for the army. I love the sentence he wrote. Your mind is capable of dark things, but never forget it's capable of even more healing and light. I love that he sees through my faults. That is so beautiful. Oh, wow. That, that is awesome. I love starting fires, building fires, and enjoying the heat and light of a fire that I made. Uh, I love when something I've lost turns up unexpectedly. Mm. I love having my hair brushed and played with. I love taking a bath, submerging my ears in the water so I can hear my heartbeat. That's a great (laughs) one. She is poetic. (laughs) She is poetic. I love challenging myself physically. I love the curly hair Frodo and the Hobbits have in The Hobbit and Lord Lord of the Rings. Oh, she likes the wigs? (laughs) I I, guess. I know some folks at Weta. I'll pass that on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love sparring with an opponent. Uh, I love the first time my best friend, uh, it happened when I was raped, after I was raped, and she stroked my back, touched me in a completely different way than he had, the opposite. And for a while, I felt safe and loved. Oh, man. Does that break your heart? It does. Oh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that does break my heart. Oh, now my love sounds so stupid. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> what would you say, you know, Kim was obviously um, a rape victim. You were a rape victim. Right. What, what, would you, what would you say to Kim? I would say don't let it define you. If you paint yourself as a victim, then you will always see yourself as a victim. Don't let that happen. Take agency and take control over your life. It ha- it's something that happened to you, and you can never undo it, mm-hmm. but turn that into a strength. Know that no matter what else happens to you in your life, you've lived through that, and you can live through anything. It makes whether or not you get accepted to college trivial. It makes your bad day trivial. You know, you've got, if you lived through it, you've got a core of strength inside you and dig down deep and find it. You know what I love about, uh, about her and I love about you too is that there is 
so much light mm. inside you that it didn't get snuffed out. Well, what's the alternative? Right? Well, the <laughs> alternative is people walking around like zombies that are unable to find any any light inside themselves and they're just kind of stuck in a loop in their head and they and they don't know how to get out of it and i think most of those people um aren't asking for help or aren't yeah i'm sure there are some that are asking for help and are doing a lot and just still happen to be and they're still struggling yeah Yeah. i mean that's a phase that's a totally natural phase you know to be struggling and trying to work through it but you know, I did a lot of work uh, at one point in my professional career with Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and meeting those people. It was so interesting how they fell into two camps, the people that it embittered them. And my God, right. How could so. it not? How could it not? If yeah. anybody has a right to be mm-hmm. bitter and angry and hate and untrusting and untrusting, it is them. Yeah. But then there were the people that just even though all this stuff had happened to them, this this light just shone from them. You know, Mm. they were a beacon and you just wanted to be around them and you wanted to talk to them and you wanted to touch them. And there was so much kindness in them. And I asked them, you know what, how did you get through? And they just said they had to just dig really deep and find who they were inside and, and hang on to that because nobody can take that away from you. You know, they can do things to your body. Um, They can try to do things to your mind, but your soul, it's always there. Always, no matter what. Yeah. And so that's what I would wish for Kim. Hang on to that. Well, Lilith, <laughs> thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Many, many thanks to Lilith for being so open and honest and uh, illuminating. I was, uh, took a lot, took a lot out of that, uh, that conversation with her. So many thanks. Um, before I take it out with uh, a survey, and an email from a listener. I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the show. You can support it non You can support it financially by going to uh, the website mentalpod.com and making either a single PayPal donation or my favorite, sign up for a monthly recurring donation. You set it up and you don't have to worry about it. Just every month, PayPal gives me uh, it's a million dollars. They give me a million dollars per person, but uh, you can afford it. You can you can do it for uh, I don't know I don't know what that uh, that voice was that just came in there, but I hope to never hear that voice again. Deeply disturbing. You can do a monthly recurring donation for as little as five bucks a month, and that may not seem like much to you guys, but it means the world to me because it adds up and it gets me closer to my dream of being able to support myself um, doing this. Slow the fuck down. Why am I rushing? You're not going anywhere. You guys are just sitting there on the treadmill or the couch or stuck in your car. This is something I got to work on. That feeling like I'm like I'm monopolizing your time. What if I was just now read it really, really slowly and did monopolize your time? I think you'd probably turn it off. You can support the show. Uh, non-financially by going to iTunes giving us a good rating writing something nice about it if you feel so inclined and you can also support it non-financially by spreading the word through social media that I would really really appreciate Um, I think I think that way I feel like I'm forgetting something I do this every time 
First thing I want to read is a survey um, from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sophie. She is in her 30s. She's straight, was raised in an environment that's pretty dysfunctional, was the victim of sexual abuse, never reported it, deepest, darkest thoughts, I wish my mother was dead, deepest, darkest secrets, my brother made me perform oral sex on him when I was around five or six. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. And by the way, so many survey respondents um, have experienced um, sex between siblings. So if you're out there and you are feeling like you're a freak because a brother or sister did something to you, it is quite common. Quite common. I don't know if that eases your pain at all, but um, I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I mostly fantasize about masturbation, watching my boyfriend as he masturbates while thinking about me. I used to fantasize about hundreds of men waiting in line to pleasure me orally. Any man that was able to bring me to orgasm with his lingual skills would be my lover. Now that's a good fantasy in theory, but eventually those hundreds of guys are going to want to unionize. And then they're going to need a break. Eating that pussy. And then they're going to force you to choose the guy who's going to be your lover because the other guy's feelings are getting hurt. And then you're going to have to go before a board and explain why certain guys eat better pussy than other guys. Maybe I'm overthinking this. Would you ever consider telling it? By the way, I, I have that same fantasy too, uh, obviously, but with uh, with women. Uh, but I also imagine that it's happening during auditions for the, a chorus line, and somebody is. Uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm bailing on that riff. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, "Yes, he knows." That's awesome. There is nothing, nothing like sharing a fantasy with a partner and having them still accept you for it or not look at you like you're weird. That is, uh, and if you're, if you are the partner of somebody who shares a fantasy with you that you're not into, be diplomatic with them. They are looking into your eyes. They are, they are looking as much at your facial expression as what you say. That is the time to really love your partner. Unless, of course, their fantasy is that they want to go uh, actually chop people's heads off. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, I suppose they make me feel in control, wanted, and loved. All right, I'm going to take it out with an email that I got from a listener named Dan. And there was much more to this email that I'm going to read, but I'm just going to read some highlighted uh, parts. And he prefaced it by saying, this is going to be a long email. I hope uh, you can find the time to read it, and I hope it doesn't bore you. Um, Right now I'm listening to the second Dr. Zucker episode and so far it is just as good as I expected. It calms me and motivates me. 
The surveys are great. They have helped me to continue expressing my feelings through writing. I love that you talk about spirituality and that you bring up Eckhart Tolle. Um, the first thing he says is, the beginning of freedom is the realization that you are not the thinker. And the first time I heard him say that, it blew my fucking mind. Throughout my life, I've had some pretty powerful spiritual experiences and definitely have felt a feeling of synchronicity at points. One of those points was last night. Maybe a month ago, I got some books from the library and one library. <laughs> I got some books from the library and one of them, the library. That's the, that's the, uh, the place where they only rent out books to uh, children who can't pronounce the word library. Um, and one of them, one of the books was The Artist's Way. It sat under the coffee table for a month, building a small overdue fee until I then renewed it online along with the others. But still it sat until I heard it mentioned on the podcast. After finishing the episode, I took the book into a bath and started reading. Today, after listening to this episode, I will be doing my first writing exercise from it, the freeform writing that she recommends to do every day. I've been diagnosed with major depression which I think could be the title of a movie about a melancholy army guy. Give me 20 push-ups or 10. I don't know. I'm going to lie down. Anyway, I've been in the hospital twice after very near suicidal attempts. I had no physical injuries as I never actually took the final step, but I spent a lot of time standing on a ladder or a space heater with a noose around my neck. I wanted to let myself go, at the same time being so scared to do so. One time I drank half a bottle of NyQuil and stood there trying to make myself drowsy so I would lose my balance. The most recent time, I mixed bleach and nail polish remover to try to make a homemade chloroform. Luckily, the mixture made the rag turn this horrifying red color and that scared the shit out of me. And I called my mom. She then called the cops and there I was in the hospital again. Being in the hospital was really a great experience both times and I am so thankful that my mom allowed herself to react and call the cops. Sigh. I'm afraid that I'm going on too much, but I'm going to continue anyway. Thank you for creating the space for me to feel at least comfortable enough to write to you, even though I still have anxieties about it. Thank you for showing me that you don't have to be perfect to help yourself or to help others. It is heartwarming to know that even someone as fucked up as you can be so damn helpful and giving in a healthy way. And I use the term fucked up in the warmest way possible. One of the main problems with my depression is that I have trouble keeping therapy appointments. I get depressed or anxious or my sleep schedule gets messed up so that I am too tired to get up. And the not sleeping enough is just a form of self-sabotage. I live with my dad and I ask for his help to have him help me get up in the morning or whenever to make it to my appointments. He is not very good at it and I blame him for not being able to get me up rather than taking on the responsibility. I hope to change this. I believe that he would take me to an appointment if I felt I really needed him to, but I will save that for, but I don't even get out of bed to have him drive, uh, but if I don't even get out of bed to have him drive, then there isn't much he can do. I have plenty of problems with my parents, but I will save that for another email. The point is that I want help, and I'm going to make my goal to get it. Anyway, uh... I have a lot more in my head. Hopefully doing the freeform writing will help get some of it out. But for now, I just want to sit back and listen to the podcast. Thank you for encouraging me and the rest of your listeners to never give up seeking help. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, uh, 
some of my fears and loves. And I'm just going to read some of his loves and we're going to go out on that. I love the sun. I love the light it gives and its warmth. I love birds. I love my fingers. I love making others laugh. I love sitting in front of a fire. I love healing. I love that there is help out there. I love that I feel motivated to get help. I love the idea that I can forgive myself and live a healthy life. I love sneezing. I love crying. I love good therapy. When I go in feeling like collapsing and leave smiling and looking up at the sky. I love when you say you are not alone. Well, Dan, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. <laughs>